We are in the book of Colossians. We are in chapter 2. And we are getting now to the specifics of what Paul is addressing. Uh, We'll go more specific next week. But he starts with these words in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, I want you to know, Colossians, how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the truth, the gospel. Thanks be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard of the moonwalking bear? Uh, about 12 years ago, there, there was a video making the rounds. Uh, and there were eight people split into two teams. Four of them wearing white and four of them wearing black. And they each had a basketball in hand. And they were instructed to run around within frame of the camera and to pass the ball to each other as many times as they wanted while running around in in random patterns. It's hard to keep up, right? It's hard to count and get through all the distractions. Your job as the viewer is to count how many times the white team passed the ball. Not all of them, just the white team. So you're focusing on one thing. It was an awareness test. In fact, that, that was the introduction to the video. The narrator starts, this is an awareness test. And I showed it to my high schoolers uh, a few years back. And no one wants to be labeled unaware. So as soon as I played that video, they all sat up in their chair and they focused on the screen. They were laser focused on the white team. And how many times that ball changed hands? One, two, three, no, not three, four. Okay. And they were focused. Now, when the narrator on the video announced the total number of passes, 13, most of them let out a noticeable cheer. I'm aware. But then the video continued. But how many of you noticed the moonwalking bear? Their eyes just went up. What moonwalking bear? There wasn't a moonwalking bear. I was watching that video the whole time. Sure enough, the video rewinds. And as you were focused on the white team passing the basketball, right in the middle of the screen was a guy in a bear costume doing the moonwalk. And every single one of them, astonished, missed it. Christians, we can get so focused on other things, even good things that we are commanded to do, that we miss, that we can be deceived by others and even ourselves and miss the core, the gospel. We can miss the moonwalking bear. Sometimes the deception is silly, like missing a guy in a bear costume in a video. But sometimes that deception is angering and embarrassing, like when we get tricked out of money. 
Sometimes that deception can be extremely hurtful, like when you thought someone was your friend, and it turns out they've been talking badly about you behind their back, behind your back. But the worst deception of all would be to build your life on a single goal, only to find out in the end that it wasn't worth it. The single greatest deception in your life would be to spend your life in search of something, only to find out that you were looking in the wrong place. How can we be sure that our goals are worthwhile? That we're not looking in all the wrong places for value or happiness? The short answer is the good news of the gospel, Jesus Christ. We have Christ, and Christ is over deception. How? We're going to look at three things to answer that. We're going to look at what deceives us, what encourages us, and finally, what assures us. So what deceives us Christians and non-Christians alike? Well, often you can tell the solution to a problem, or you can tell the problem by looking at the solution. If I tell you, you know, so I offered him a breath mint, you know the problem was bad breath. If Paul tells you in verse 2 that the goal is to coming up on the screens right now. Here it comes. To reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, that tells you that the Colossians were deceived into thinking that they didn't have full assurance of their understanding and knowledge. They were being told that they were missing something. Isn't that the very first deception in the very first book of the Bible? Genesis chapter 3. This is what the serpent told Eve. God knows, God knows that when you eat of it, Genesis 3, five, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God because you're not like God now. You're missing something. Knowing good and evil. You know a lot, Eve, but you're missing something. You don't know about good and evil. God's holding out on you. You're missing something. The Colossians were being told by those within and without the church that they were missing something. To be a real Christian, they needed Jesus and religious acts like circumcision and a particular way of observing the Sabbath. We'll get into that next week. They needed Jesus and to follow a particular teacher, read a certain book, read this commentary then they would have access to real wisdom, real knowledge, real assurance of salvation. 2,000 years later, not much has changed. You are being told within and without the church, even by your own heart, that real Christians follow Jesus and. Jesus and a certain number of hours reading your Bible. Jesus and social justice. Jesus and voting a certain way. Jesus and a certain number of volunteer hours. The list goes on. So how can we prepare our hearts against all these deceptions, all these additions to the gospel, which sometimes sound so close to the real thing? Well, imagine your job was not to train, uh, to train men and women not to spot counterfeit gospel, but to spot counterfeit money, how would you do it? How would you train other people to spot counterfeit money? 
Would you have them look at all the counterfeit bills ever made? That's one strategy. Would you have them study each and every technique used to replicate the ink or the paper? Well, the way the Secret Service does it, the way the Secret Service trains its agents and other agents to spot counterfeit bills is by studying the real thing and studying it in painstaking detail. They look at the color of the ink. They feel it with their fingers over and over so that they know what that paper, that special cotton blend is like. They look at the font. They look at how closely the letters and the words are spaced together. They look for holographic images embedded. They look at it in pain staking detail. They study the real thing so that when they encounter a fake, it stands out. It's like uh, if someone looking like Pastor Rob were to stand up here and tells you how much he hates percussion. You would know something is wrong because you know the real thing. You know Rob loves percussion. You know that. So when someone presents to you a false Jesus, a Jesus and you know the real thing. You are called to study and know the real thing because that is what can keep us from deception. That's why Paul, at the beginning of this letter, lays out the real thing for you and for me, Christian. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, he says this, Your only comfort in life and in death is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Does that sound, sound like someone who needs and attached to his name? No, friends. Jesus stands alone. But sometimes we can get wrapped up in so many other things, even good things, that we unintentionally something or someone else besides Jesus. Some of us are sharing the gospel of Bible reading. You got to go read your Bible. You got to read it every day. You got to meditate on it day and night. That's what keeps you. That's what keeps you from being deceived. That's your hope. That's the gospel. That's good, but that's not good news. Others of us are modeling the gospel of loving others. Christianity is all about loving others. You got, you got to just get out there and you got to do good deeds and you got to give generously of your time and your money and you got to volunteer and you got to go to homeless shelters and that's what you got to do. That's what Christians are all about. That, that's good, but that's not good news. You're telling people to count the passes all while missing the moonwalking bear. The good news of the gospel is what Paul has already told us in chapter 1. Starting in verse 20, he says, Through Christ, to reconcile to himself, to himself, all things. Whether they are on earth or in heaven, he made peace by the blood of his cross. And now you, you were reconciled to his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Your prayer life does not reconcile you before God. 
your kind words do not make you blameless. Those are consequences of the gospel, not the cause. Those are a result of the good news, not the cause for rejoicing. And that's what can deceive us when we confuse those two. When we we deceive ourselves and are deceived by others, when we do or add anything to the gospel, when we put anything else at the center where Jesus should be. The good news of the gospel, the Jesus offered in the gospel is Jesus and him alone. And because we are made new in him, we want to read our Bibles. We want to pray. We want to give our time. We want to sacrificially love others. But those are not the gospel. Those are the consequences of our joy. Jesus is our joy, and in him, we are protected from being deceived by plausible arguments. That's what can deceive us. Now, here's the good news. How exactly does Jesus protect us from look-alike gospels? How does he keep his people from being deluded by plausible arguments? We're going to look at two things. First, what encourages us, and then what assures us. Go to verses 1 and 2. Paul lays it out pretty clearly. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Why? That their hearts may be encouraged. How? How are their hearts supposed to be encouraged? Being knit together in love. It's going to take a while to get there, so follow me here. Why does Paul want them to know his great struggle? Because it changes the way they struggle. For Paul, his suffering after preaching the gospel was not evidence that he was wrong. On the contrary, his suffering was evidence that he was united to Christ. In his mind, Jesus suffered, so will I. Yeah? Okay, so we're there. Next step. So how does Paul's suffering encourage the Colossians and you? You have to go backwards. You have to go back to the letter. Remember, when we preached through chapter 1, we told you, everything you need to know is in chapter 1. All the rest of the chapters are just going to expound on it, right? Here's verses uh, 3 through 5 of chapter 1. We thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love that you have for all the saints— Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Paul knows that Christians united to Christ must suffer. Yes, but they also have a hope laid up for them in heaven. That changes the way you suffer. That changes the way you approach plausible arguments. The threats of being deceived by something that is Jesus and or completely different from Jesus altogether. Just as Jesus suffered and was raised to glory, so also we will suffer and be raised to glory. And that changes everything. As Paul says in chapter 3, verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. And then he goes on to say all the consequences of that in chapter 3. Put on this, take off this. That is the source of our encouragement. It is Jesus himself. Don't get it twisted. 
It's not our family, our fortune, or our faithfulness. It's not our Bible reading, our prayer life, or our holiness. It's Jesus alone. But Jesus is never alone. Here's what we mean by that. One of the ways Jesus himself encourages us, one of the ways God has ordained for us to resist these plausible arguments from the devil, from the world, and from our own hearts is his church, the body. That's why we read together in verse 2. Don't miss these words. It's so easy to miss them. Look at verse 2. You are supposed to reach the, the full assurance, and the way that you do that The way that you are supposed to be encouraged is by being knit together in love. Being knit together in love. That's how you reach the full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery. Think of this imagery of knitting. I'm not a a knitter or a a knittist, whatever, however you say that. But you you can imagine the threads, the fabric, being woven together, right? And what happens to those individual threads as they are woven together? What happens to them? They're united. What happens to one happens to the others. I I can't just pull on one thread. It pulls on all the threads that that one thread is connected to. You You can't burn an individual thread of a fabric. It burns all the, other fa- all the other threads connected to that one fabric. When one suffers, all suffer. When one rejoices, all rejoice. But you aren't just knit together in fabric, you're knit together in love. When people are in the hospital, you go visit and you pray and you make them meals. When brothers and sisters are struggling with finances, the church gives generously. That's just what we do. We're knit together. When the associate pastor hypothetically tears his meniscus, the church drives to his home and mows his lawn. I, you have to realize how unbelievable that is to the world. You would just give up your Saturday to go mow a lawn for someone you're not even related to? Who does that? That's the power of the gospel in action. Brothers and sisters, that... That is the power of the gospel. Amen, indeed. We're not just knit together, we're knit together in love. And that means we don't just suffer together. We don't just tell each other, they're there. I know what you're going through. We don't just sit there and give them a shoulder to cry on. Though we do those things, in Christ we do more, we love. To be the body of Christ means to be the hands and feet of love. If Jesus, the head of the church, is love, then we show his love as the hands and feet. Now, I know firsthand, I'm happy to share this story uh, one-on-one if you've ever liked to hear it, but I know firsthand the hesitation to get involved in a local church. I know firsthand the temptation to just love Jesus, love my neighbors, do my own thing, because in theory, the church is a wonderful place. But in practice, the church is filled with hypocrisy and bad doctrine and abusive leadership and inconsistencies. I know firsthand what this must sound like to some of you. But the good news of the gospel, what we are told, our hope, 
is that even though the church has not lived up to its calling, Jesus has nevertheless covenanted himself to love it. He has promised to love his church like a husband loves his bride, not just when she's healthy, not just when she's being reasonable, not just when she's exciting, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse. Even when his people, even when God's people were actively seeking other husbands, we get a picture in the book of Hosea of what God will do the lengths he will go to to reclaim his people, not once they get their act together, but while they were enemies. Jesus did not only die for his church of sinners. He gave this church to us, fellow sinners, so that we would be encouraged in the midst of suffering and strengthened in the midst of threats to deceive us. What does that mean for you, Christian? It means show up, Sure, sing, learn the songs, say those confessions loudly and proudly. Sure, give generously of your time. Absolutely, ask for help, confess your sins to one another, forgive freely, all those things. But all the while, keep in mind the good news. Those things are a consequence of the gospel. They are not the cause. The cause of the good news is that the church is the body, not the head. The ultimate source, the ultimate guide and sustainer and protector from deception is not the body, it is the head, Jesus Christ. And our participation in his church is a good, wonderful consequence of that good news. Amen. What deceives us is anything that replaces or adds to Jesus. He doesn't need an and attached to his name. What encourages us is, of course, Jesus himself, but he has also given us his body to be knit together in love in him. But what ultimately assures us, what ultimately protects us is Jesus Christ himself. So lastly, we're going to look at what assures us. Uh, Paul lays this out clearly in verse 2. We keep going back to verse 2 because it's where everything is. In verse 2, he says that the goal of all of this is to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Can you pull that back up for just three seconds? Did, did you catch that last phrase? You're supposed to be encouraged. You do that by being knit together in love. The goal is to reach full assurance but what's at the end of all of that? I should say, what's at the center of all of that? Christ. How do you reach full assurance of understanding? Well, full assurance of understanding is Christ. How do you reach the knowledge of God's mystery? Christ. What is God's mystery? Christ. How do I get full assurance? Christ. Christ. It's like a broken record, right? You just Keep going back to that. It's the Sunday school answer for a reason. Jesus, 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 Jesus. And the reason we back to that over and over is because it is so easy to be deceived away from that. 
does this diminish any effort or remove any effort on our part? Absolutely not. Look at what Paul says in verse five. He says, I am confident, I am rejoicing to to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Jesus Christ. These are military terms, by the way. They're, they're used to describe the, the, the ranks, the rank and file, how they are lined up and how they, how they are lined up in their defensive positions to hold. When deception comes, you hold strong, firm. Earlier in Colossians chapter one, Paul urged them to walk in a manner Worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. We are called to stand firm, to be in good order, to walk worthy, to be fully pleasing to him, to bear fruit and increase in the knowledge of God. We are called to do things. But that is not what assures you. The question of how can I be sure that I'm walking worthy? How can I be sure that I am not going to be deceived? Jesus Christ. Remember, the Colossians were being told from within and without that they needed more. They needed Jesus and, yes, Jesus saved them, but to be real Christians, to reach full assurance, they needed certain behaviors and certain extra beliefs, to which Paul says, absolutely not. In Jesus, we have full assurance. Or as he says in verse 3, this mystery which is Christ, he is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christians, we struggle with the same deception, whether we realize it or not. We tell ourselves or are told by others that, yes, Jesus saves us, but our good works are what assure us that I'm still saved. Jesus saves us, but my thirst for theology assures me that I'm a a real Christian. Jesus saves, but the way I love my neighbor, the way that I'm not one of these dead Christians who just reads books all day, that's, that's what comforts me. The biggest problem with these plausible arguments is what almost always happens. Inevitably, at least for a time, I don't feel like reading my Bible as much anymore. I don't want to pray. The last thing I want to do is give up a free weekend to go help my neighbor, to go mow a lawn, to help someone move, to go visit in the hospital. And so all of a a sudden, those things that were sources of assurance become sources of doubt and deception because they were never meant to be those things in the first place. So what happens when I don't feel like reading my Bible? Did I lose my salvation? What happens when life gets busy and I make up excuses not to go visit my neighbor, not to love the church, not to share the gospel? Is that an occasion to doubt God's love for me? In his book, uh, The Pilgrim's Progress, I think you've heard of it, uh, John Bunyan illustrated this very well. It's, it's one of my favorite pictures from the entire book. Um, the main character, Christian, named Interpreter. And Interpreter's job is to teach the words of Scripture that will help Christian ward off potential deceptions, things that try to deceive him off the path 
right? And one of the ways interpreter does this is by taking Christian to a wall. And this wall was on fire. And next to the wall was a man trying to put out the fire by pouring water on it. But not only did the fire not go out, it eventually grew. So Christian asked, what's that all about? What does it mean? An interpreter tells him, the fire is the work of God's grace in your heart. But the devil, the man, is constantly working to put it out by deceiving us. Curious as to how the fire not only did not go out, but kept burning, even though water was being poured on it, interpreter took Christian to the other side of the Another man. But this man wasn't pouring water. This man had a jar of oil in his hand that he would spill onto the fire to not only keep it going, but growing. So interpreter explained what I'm sure you've already figured out. This is Christ. The devil may discourage He may partially deceive. The waters he pours may have an effect. But remember Bunyan's hope in the story. What assured Christian? It wasn't interpreter. It wasn't his faith. It wasn't his ability to keep the fire going. It was the one who was on the other side of the wall. That's what assures us Christian. Amen? It's what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1. And notice the language he uses. He says, I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He who started the fire will himself keep it going and growing. That's what Paul is sure of. Don't get it confused, Christian. We were all deceived at one point or another. As Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, he saved us, right? He saved us when you were alienated, when you were hostile, when you were doing evil deeds, we were all enemies of God, deceived into thinking that we were not that bad. In general, we were pretty good. We were all deceived into thinking that God is angry with us, so we better get ourselves right with God. We better do more good than bad. But the good news of the gospel, and please hear this, no matter how many times you've heard it before, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is the one that saved you from that. But he is also the one who sustains you. He is not just the beginner of your faith, the finisher. And if you did not save yourself initially from that deception, then it's certainly not up to you to continue keeping yourself from that deception as the author of Hebrews puts it in no uncertain terms. You look to Jesus. He is not just the founder. He didn't just give you a good start. He is the perfecter of your faith. So whatever is deceiving you from obedience to Jesus alone, I encourage you, Christian, I'm encouraging myself as I'm talking, to receive and rest in what we are about to sing. In every high and stormy gale, it is not my faith that holds me. It is not my intelligence. It is not my good works. 
my anchor holds within the veil.